Good morning. Good morning again. It's good to hear you all meeting and greeting. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Danny. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary, and I'm honored to be with you this morning. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there, grandfathers, uncles, positive male role models in lives. I was, I was uh, reading yesterday, and like statistics that are measurable, it's so significant, the role of a father in a, in a kid's life. And so um, we celebrate you today. Happy Father's Day. Hope you enjoy the day. Um, curious, how many people, when a movie comes out that a book has already been written, how many people are like, I got to read the, got to read the book first? Yeah. All right. Quite a few of you. Um, and what's interesting about that to me is that like you've read the book, you know how it starts, you know how it kind of, you know, the plot, you know how it ends. But when we watch the movie, like there's still some surprises along the way, like how an actor portrays a character that we thought would be a certain way or uh, maybe the way that the director tells the story a little bit differently than the author would have. But the point is, when we're watching the movie, we sort of know the beginning, we know the end. Uh, we sort of know how the story goes. And I was thinking about that as we're going through this book of Mark. We have sort of that benefit, right? Like we're watching the, the movie of the disciples and how they, how they interact with Jesus along the way, but we know sort of how the story goes. Um, and what's interesting to me is we can now look back and say, okay, Mark's divided into these three main sections. We looked at the first section over the past year in different times, and it's really focused on Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God, right? And this, these eight chapters that we looked at, it covers three years of time. So it's a pretty long amount of time. Last week, though, we saw this shift in the book of Mark into the next section, and it's six chapters, and it's going to cover three weeks. Three weeks of time in six chapters, about the same amount of text or words that three years covered, we're now going to look at in three weeks. And so Mark is very intentional about the words he uses. It gets intense. He takes the candor of Jesus to what feels like a whole new level. And uh, we saw last week that uh, Mark makes it clear that something new is happening. Verse 31, Mark wrote, he began to teach them. But we know from the first eight chapters, he's been teaching them. And so something is changing and that's because Jesus has been talking about the kingdom, and now he's going to start teaching about the cost of the kingdom. And so this is what we're going to look at over the summer. This whole summer, we're going to look at this section, these six chapters in the book of Mark that are the cost of the kingdom. And then next year, sometime, we'll look at the third section, and that's really the section where we see what it takes for Jesus to become king. So if we think about these sections from the disciples' perspective, right, a first century Jewish man, it was the goal of them to be under a rabbi's teaching. But if you think about it, it would be like getting accepted to a college that you can't apply for, but that you've always wanted to go to, right? It's this incredible invitation to be a part of this inner circle of a, of a teacher, an esteemed teacher. And the goal once in this relationship was three things, to be with your teacher, to be like your teacher, and then to do what your teacher did. And this is what the disciples are learning over the course of what we're looking at in the Gospels. And so we might say that the book of Mark is outlined like this then. The first section, Mark focuses on being with Jesus. The second section, the section we're in now, talks about how to be like Jesus. And then that third section is going to show the full expression of Jesus' teaching lived out by himself so that we can see and that we might do what Jesus did. 
And so if you weren't here last week or didn't get a chance to watch it, I would highly, highly, highly recommend going back to watch that because Dale's message last week is the foundation for the entire summer of the teacher that, teaching that we're going to look at. And if last week was part one of the passage, today is part two of the passage. And so at a very high level, last week, last week we saw that Jesus addressed the myths that we believe about him. And today we're going to look at the myths that we believe about ourselves. And so let's just remember where we were in the passage last week. They're uh, coming out of the, or they're right outside the city of Philippi. It's a Roman city. And Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter, as he does, steps up. He confesses on behalf of everybody else. You're the Messiah. And Jesus says, yep, I am, and I must suffer and die. Peter pulls Jesus aside. He's like, Jesus, I think, I think you got it wrong. He rebukes him. He, he tells the Messiah, you got it wrong. And Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not set in your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And this is where we pick up this morning in verse 34. So Jesus is over here with Peter, right? Tells him that, and then he goes over to everybody else, and he says, he calls the crowd to them, and he says this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Wow. So the goal of this series has been to look at what Jesus actually said and what he actually did. And so in the next 20 minutes or so, we're going to look at the really simple topics of shame, identity, and uh, life after death. Does that sound good? <laughs> uh, it's, like I said, Mark takes the intensity of Jesus' words to a whole new level. Um, but truly, this is, this is some significant stuff because these are issues that are foundational to how we see ourselves. They're foundational to humanity. And so um, when it comes to this challenge that Jesus makes, we are in this together. I'm very much preaching to myself today. Um, and so we're gonna, we'll go through this together, okay? Um, so let's just for a second remember who Jesus is talking to. So there's the disciples and then there's the crowd, right? And the disciples are Jewish men. And then we've got uh, the crowd, which is probably some Jewish people, but also some Gentiles from a Greco-Roman culture. So. Um, to understand how they would be hearing what Jesus is saying, let's just think about a few things about them. So Jewish people, they, are, uh, they come from hundreds of years of rich generational heritage layered with faith tradition, but they're under oppression from Rome. They're, they would consider themselves in exile. They believe in the one true God, Yahweh, but they've been taught more recently in, in recent years, specifically by the Pharisees, that in order for the Messiah to come back and rescue them from the power and oppression of Rome, they need to follow the law perfectly and the rules that the Pharisees added to it. So then you got the Gentiles. And if you read about this time in history, uh, Greco-Roman culture is very uncertain. They're torn between the dominating philosophies of the time, which the, the two main ones are Stoicism, which would say, the, good, the way to give, live a good life is to live a virtuous life. Or Epicureanism, which would say the greatest good is to seek pleasure through the knowledge of the natural world. If you notice, both of those sort of deny the authority of a higher power. 
But what's interesting is at the same time is there are so many gods and so many idols. If you remember in first, when Paul goes to Athens, there are so many statues that there's one to an unknown God. They worship so many idols. So there's this confusion of who to worship, let alone that they would see their, their rulers, the emperors, Caesar, Augustus, these guys as deity themselves. But there's unrest in the government. Some of these guys are losing battles. They're arguing between each other. Some of them have died. And so the people of the Greco-Roman culture that Jesus is speaking to, they're confused who to worship. And so in either case, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile listening to Jesus here, you have to imagine that there is some insecurity, that there is a wrestle of identity. And I don't think it's a coincidence that as Mark is outlining these sections, that when he starts the, the conversation of the cost of the kingdom, the first thing he addresses is the myths we believe about Jesus, and the second thing is the myths we believe about ourselves. And as Jesus does, he addresses these things head on. So we're gonna work backwards through this passage because I think Jesus sets a thesis at the beginning and he lands it. And I think looking at the last part and working backwards is helpful. So he says in nine verse one, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. What's he talking about? He's most likely talking about Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is first sent. Right? We, have, we can read this story in Acts chapter 2. We know that Jesus died. He rose again. He appeared to hundreds of people. And before he ascended back into heaven, he said to the disciples, go wait in the city for the Holy Spirit. It's going to come. And then he said, these are the some of you that he's referencing. Wait there. And so they are. They go into this room. There's like the city is still in a ton of unrest based on what's happened. They're freaking out. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes with wind and fire and everything changes. They're not afraid anymore. They go out, they proclaim the gospel. And this is the new operation of the kingdom of God, powered by the Holy Spirit going out. And this is, this is what uh, has been prophesied for centuries before. So if you look at um, God's words in Ezekiel, this is 600 years before this happens. This is what God says. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so Jesus is assuring you, assuring his disciples, some of you are gonna get to see it happen. The kingdom that I've been teaching about for the last three years, what, what the prophets prophesied about for centuries you're going to get to see it. And because we have the book, we know the end, we know that they did. Now here's what's interesting about God's words in Ezekiel. If we keep reading the same passage, he continues speaking. He says, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. That's fulfilling the promise made to Abraham back in Genesis. 29, I will deliver you from your uncleanness. That's fulfilling the requirements of the Mosaic law in Exodus and Leviticus. But if we jump down to 31, God says, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. So in the midst of God promising the people that he's gonna deliver the Holy Spirit, fulfill all the requirements of the covenants throughout the Old Testament, inaugurating the kingdom of God, he says, be ashamed. Is that weird? It's pretty weird. So let's go back to verse 38 in our passage because Jesus says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 
So God says, when I inaugurate the kingdom, be ashamed. Jesus says, when I come back to fully usher in the kingdom, if you're ashamed, I'll be ashamed of you. Does this feel off? Like, we're supposed to avoid shame, right? Like, why? Jesus loves us. Would he really be ashamed? One of my professors says, when you hit a bump in scripture, and he's funny, he always makes this sound. He always goes, chukunk. He always does it. He says, you got to stop and look back to see what you ran over. And, and I think this is one of those bumps. Right? So let's, let's take a minute to talk about this. Let's think about this together. So shame in the dictionary says this. It's a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. It's a feeling. But I think we could all agree that shame as we understand it is much more than feeling embarrassed. And the reason that it's so much more than a feeling is that over the past century or so, shame and identity have become so intertwined that to feel shame is actually identity deconstruction. Identity in our culture has become so complicated that we are conditioned to avoid shame at all costs. And this, I know we are venturing into some complicated waters here, and so I want to be really careful, I want to be sensitive, and I want to, I, so here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying with our cultural understanding of what shame is that you should feel that. I'm not saying with our understanding of shame that you should put that on anybody else, and I'm especially not saying with what we understand of shame today that God is wanting you to feel that. What I am saying is let's try and understand the biblical use of shame here and what it's saying in its context. Rob talked about um, biblical literacy, that's that handout, and this is so much what that course is about, what Dale does. He talks about this this whole idea that um, foundational to our understanding of scripture is to understand that the Bible is written for us, but it's not written to us. It's an ancient document written by ancient people in a very different culture than what we have. And so we have some work to do to understand within its context, how do we take that and apply it to our lives today? And so that's why we're asking everybody to go through this because um, when we get to the teaching this fall, it's gonna be super helpful to have that understanding and that background as we approach our teaching this fall. So take that um, card with you, sign up for the course, the eight-week schedule, you can check it off, use those boxes to mark your progress, those kind of things. And if you weren't here last week, there's workbooks uh, in the lobby that you can grab and take with you, but we would highly, highly, highly encourage you to do that. So when it comes to the idea of shame and lots of other things, but for our purposes, shame this morning, we have some work to do to understand who it was written to, who it was written by, and what is their context. So ancient readers and writers do not have the same concept of shame that we do. First century Rome, which is where, this is the time that Mark wrote this gospel, is a shame and honor society. And in a shame and honor context, shame is actually used constructively to shape a culture to its desired outcome. Shame is used to create conformity to a cultural norm within large groups of people. So let me show you an example from scripture. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing a letter to a newly planted church. And these are all mostly Gentile people that he's writing to. They're coming out of the world and into the family of God. And this church is a mess, understandably so, because they are literally changing their entire worldview and the lifestyle that they are accustomed to. And as Paul is giving instruction, look at how he he contextualizes it. Chapter six, verse five, he says, I say this to your shame. 14, verse 34, again, I say this to your shame. 
So in the midst of detailed instruction, where Paul is trying to shape a church of all sorts of different backgrounds and faiths and all sorts of journeys, he's trying to shape them into a body of believers under the rule and reign of Jesus. Paul gently and pastorally uses shame to help this, people move, this group of people move forward. So shame is correction away from harmful behavior toward healthy ways of living in the biblical context. Does that make sense? This is one definition that I found was really helpful. It says, uh, shame in the biblical context refers to being disgraced, bringing on fitting shame that matches the error of wrongly identifying or aligning with something. So with that in mind, if we go back to Ezekiel, God is saying that the Holy Spirit is gonna come. The The law is no longer written on tablets of stone, but the Holy Spirit is going to hold it. He's going to inhabit your life. And if we're willing to listen and if we're sensitive to the Spirit, he's going to correct us and we're going to feel convicted when we do the things that are out of alignment with God. This is a very, very good thing because God is conforming us. He's conforming you and me to be who he created us to be. And this is that process of sanctification that's come up a couple of times over the last few weeks. God is shaping us through the work of his Holy Spirit into the kind of person who lives within the kingdom of God and represents the king. So shame in the biblical context is not harmful identity deconstruction. It's constructive identity formation. So Jesus, in Mark 8, 38, when he says, if you're ashamed of my teaching, if you're ashamed of me, then I'll be ashamed of you. He's simply saying, I want you to be conformed into the person that's fit for my kingdom. I want that for you. I want you to be the person you were designed to be, but whoever wrongfully aligns with something other than that, like I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna force it on you, right? And if we think about this, if someone doesn't align with Jesus, if they disregard his teaching, they don't believe it, they live a life that is in contradiction to what he asks, would they want Jesus to align with them anyways? And for eternity? I mean, Revelation 4 talks about how For eternity, we're in God's presence, worshiping him and praising him and glorifying him. If we live a life that's completely different than that, why would we want to all of a sudden change that in eternity? Now, for those who do want to align with Jesus, for those who want to be conformed to the way of the kingdom, Jesus tells us what's required. It's in verse 34. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So one at a time, if we make these personal, to deny yourself. This is not to deny yourself of things. It's not like sometimes during Lent when we would say, I'm not gonna have sugar for Lent. It's not that, it's not stoicism. At the highest level, this is to refuse any sort of natural inclination that runs contrary to the way of Jesus. Now I realize we're, we're venturing further into complicated waters and sensitive area. So if you feel yourself tensing up a bit, that's because I believe Jesus is talking about one of the most pervasive topics of our time, if not the most pervasive topic, and that's identity. So just like we saw last week that there was a myth or a storyline that that Peter believed about the Messiah, that he believed so strongly that he was willing to rebuke the Messiah, the actual Messiah, to his face, there is a storyline throughout history that shapes the way that we think about ourselves. And the storyline goes all the way back to the beginning. It starts with Satan's deception of Eve. It goes through ancient philosophers like Aristotle, uh, Plato. It goes through the Enlightenment thinkers like Rene Descartes and Immanuel Kant, and it goes all the way through to today. 
Now, I realize that this is a topic that universities are founded upon. There are degrees that you can get in this, and so I'm going to do a very rough job of summarizing this, but I found a really helpful summary that says this storyline is essentially four principles that inform how we think about ourselves today. And these principles inform everything we watch, everything we read, it informs the discussions we have, it informs the posts that we scroll through, and all of those things influence how we think about ourselves. So I'm gonna run through this really quickly, and again, I know that this, is, this touches on some sensitive areas, and so we're, we're gonna do our best here. But human, the first principle is that human reason is the highest form of truth. There's the principle of self-possession, the principle of self-definition, and the principle of expressive individualism. Really quickly through history, 1637, Rene Descartes published the book Discourse on Method, and there's a chapter in that book where he talks about the, the idea that you've probably heard, I think, therefore I am. What happened with that principle is that human reason is the highest form of truth, which would be the foundation of the Enlightenment, which would be post-modernism, post-truth. That is where it started. And whether he meant it or not, what other thinkers took from that is that everything is subject to doubt. And because everything is subject to doubt, it introduced the possibility of there being no higher power, introduced the, the possibility that there is no God, which made the next step logically possible, which is the principle of self-possession, meaning I own myself, my capabilities, and my attributes. Now, if that's true, then the next logical step, which came about 100 years later during the Renaissance, is that because the self belongs solely to me with no obligations to others, I can define myself however I want. Now, the most recent major shift is that the highly reasoned, self-possessed, self-defined identity can't be kept to itself. In order for it to be truly itself, it has to be expressed outwardly. And that's that principle of expressive, individual, expressive individualism, meaning the self is no longer something hidden in, inside. It's articulated. It's expressed. If you're like, what are you talking about? Here, here are some practical things that you've probably heard. If you've heard my truth, that comes from human reason is the highest form of truth. If you've heard as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, that's the principle of self-possession. If you've heard I identify as fill in the blank, that's self-definition. And if you've heard the idea of a personal brand or been on social media at all, that's expressive individualism. Because of the progressive nature of thought, regardless of what the original thinkers intended, what has happened to the concept of identity over the past 400 years in particular, is that we're encouraged to define ourselves by things that were never meant to, to define us. We're encouraged to define what makes us us with things that were never meant to make us us. And this is the myth that I think Jesus is calling out that the bottom line is alignment with this way of thinking is out of alignment with the way of God. Jesus is saying if we hang on to worldly ideologies, things we enjoy doing, roles and responsibilities we carry, things other people say about us, if those things remain core and most important to who we are over and against what God says about us and who he designed us to be, our identities will fall apart. And that's because if we place roles or activities at the core of who we are, the only way to get input on those is from other people. Let me give you a couple of examples. 
Um, I'm a dad. I love being a dad. I love, being, I love parenting our kids with Monica. I love my kids. And if I place a fa- being a father at the core of who I am, what happens when my kids don't listen to me? Not that that would ever happen, <laughs> right? Or what happens if they disrespect me? Or, or when they move out and my relationship with them as a father changes? If a father is core to who I am and those things change, then part of who I am is in jeopardy. Another example, and this is a silly one, but because it's Father's Day, I feel like it's applicable. I love playing golf, right? But what if I get hurt and can't swing a golf club anymore? Or what if I have a bad round? Again, not that that would ever happen, or that anyone would ever make fun of me for missing a three-foot putt. Never would that happen, right? But if I place something I value doing at the core of who I am, if it changes, part of who I am is in jeopardy. And the reality is we do this with so many things, ranging from simple to complex, thoughts, activities, roles, expression. And the risk of placing these things at the core of our identity is that our identity is, at, is in jeopardy, or at worst, it's, it, it's at risk of being lost. And so I think what Jesus is saying when he says to deny yourself is he's inviting us that there's a way to be freed from the crushing pressure of an identity that's achieved and embrace his invitation to receive an identity that's unshakable. Tim Keller summarized this paradigm and he says, the modern identity requires outside input for affirmation, but there has to be somebody whom you adore who adores you. Someone who you cannot but praise, who praises and loves you. That is the foundation of identity. However, if we put this power in the hands of a fallible, changeable person, it can be devastating. And if this person's regard is based on your fallible and changeable life efforts, your self-regard will be just as fleeting and fragile. Nor can this person be someone you can lose because then you will have lost your very self. Obviously, no human love can meet these standards. Only love of the immutable can bring tranquility. Only the unconditional love of God will do. And I think that brings us to the second half of Jesus' statement of what's required to take up your cross and follow me. Is there a greater expression of love than this? Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, who had the highest identity of all, the name above all names, he gave it up, denied himself for you and for me so that we could have an unshakable and eternal eternal identity in him. There is no greater love than that. So Jesus isn't asking us to do something he didn't already do. Jesus went first. He modeled this, and he modeled this example in the most extreme way possible. God becoming man, dying a humiliating criminal death, denying ourselves and taking up the cross in and of itself becomes our identity, and it's not an identity that we achieve. It's an identity that is received. Theologian Richard Richard Bauckham says, the receiving of one's true and eternal self is thus through the giving of oneself. See, Mark 8.34 is the first time the word cross comes up in the book of Mark. Jesus is the first person to say it. 
But the, the symbol of the cross, the idea of the cross, is not new to the people listening. These are people living in Roman territory. They would be way too familiar with a cross. The cross is a symbol for certain death, but not just any death. It's humiliating, excruciating, and utterly disgraceful death for criminals. Anyone who comes up against the authority of Rome would be, an, be made an example of in a very public setting. And so I assure you, there is no one wearing cross jewelry in the first century. They want nothing to do with the cross. And Jesus is saying, even if they didn't understand it, if the first listeners did not understand it, he's saying, I'm going to the cross willingly and sacrificially, and if anyone wants to be my disciple, they'll follow me there too. True disciples will deny, true disciples of Jesus will deny themselves and follow him so faithfully and so loyally that would, they would give their life for him and the truth of his teaching. I think the extreme of this is martyrdom, right? I think Jesus is saying, true disciples would be willing to go there for me. But I think maybe more so he's talking about the daily choice to live sacrificially and to live a servant life. Maybe it's letting someone go in front of you at the grocery store or paying for their groceries. Maybe it's giving up the need to be right in a conversation. Maybe it's giving up a raise so that somebody else can be paid a fair wage. There are lots of ways to be servant people, to live sacrificially, and I think that's what Jesus is talking about. The great and abounding love of Jesus to empty himself and deny himself and die a humiliating, excruciating death in our place is what makes possible an unshakable identity that is confident and secure enough to follow his example and to obey his teaching. It's how Paul can say in his letter to the Corinthians, I don't care what you think about me. I don't even care what I think about me. I care what God thinks about me. Our identity is not just that we imitate Christ, but as we follow him faithfully, the form of Jesus takes form in us. And this becomes our new identity that informs every other area of our life. It informs the other things that are true about me, but not core to who I am. My identity in Christ informs how I fulfill my role as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a friend, and even as a golfer. And so how do we do this? So at the beginning, I suggested a model that we must embrace. And I think this is the model that, that we need in order to do it. And it's to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. Denying ourselves is an extremely difficult thing to do, especially in a culture that says to do the exact opposite. So denying ourselves and taking up the cross is a daily posture it's listening and being sensitive to the Holy Spirit's correction. Being sensitive to the Holy Spirit that God promised in Ezekiel. And it's a posture that we assume over a lifetime. This, isn't, this doesn't happen overnight. It's a daily choice. So this is the good news. We are more sinful than we ever imagined, but we are more known and loved and accepted in Jesus than we could ever know. This is the core of our identity, and this is what makes it possible to follow Jesus with full obedience, love, loyalty, and sacrifice to our last breath. As we do with every service, we're gonna spend some time listening and responding. And so I invite you to close your eyes and just imagine that you're sitting, just you and, you and Jesus. I think there's a couple areas that I would just encourage you to reflect on, and the first is that you are so loved 
that God became man and died in your place. Take just a minute and let that sink in. ask Jesus is what's vying for that core place of my identity that I need to deny the reality is that if you've made Jesus your Lord and Savior you have the Holy Spirit within you he wants to conform you to to be a person that's fit for the kingdom of God and so if we're willing to listen he's gonna he's gonna speak so just ask him what is there anything at the core of my identity I need to deny cost of the kingdom, it isn't cheap, but it's worth it. And if you could imagine what kind of place that we, this would be if we were people who embraced that cost, not just for us, but for the community around us. And so that's, that's our invitation today, is to be people that embrace the cost of the kingdom, deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. And um, on today, I, I guess I think I would just say, dads, let's, let's go first. In the conversation, in the conversation, no, I'm serious. In our, in our conversation, maybe faith conversations are normal in your family. I, that, and if they are, awesome. But if they aren't, maybe just today, start by sharing, this is what I feel like I need to deny in myself. Start the conversation with your family today. And let's start something new in our families. As we close, I wanted to read this from um, Ephesians. This is Paul's prayer over the Ephesians. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So let's do that. Let's be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let's follow the way of Jesus. And to just end on a lighthearted note, let's enjoy some dad's root beer today. Okay? Happy Father's Day. Have an awesome day.